from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's stop movement order is off tonight. Defense Secretary Mark Esper writes DOD personnel can move to or from localities if local travel restrictions and shelter-in-place orders aren't in effect. The locality has a 14-day downward trajectory of symptoms and a 14-day downward trajectory of new COVID cases or positive tests. USNI News reports Under Secretary for Personnel and Readiness Matt Donovan says service secretaries and local commanders can consider other factors like available hospital beds and testing capacity when they approve travel. The Defense Department's looking for a new Deputy Inspector General tonight. Glenn Fine resigned Tuesday. The IG office says no one in the administration or the department asked Fine to resign. His last day on the job is next Monday. The Senate Armed Services Committee says it'll start on this year's National Defense Authorization Act the week of June 8th. The subcommittees on readiness and strategic forces will mark up their bills first. The personnel subcommittee will be the only one to mark up its bill in public. Defense Department employees could soon get to use their government-issued mobile devices in secure places. The Defense Information Systems Agency's new pilot will use technology that blocks phone sensors. Steve Wallace is a systems innovation scientist at DISA. Steve, welcome. It's good to see you. This is exciting for people who think it's kind of a pain to lock their phones in boxes before they go into the skiff. What does this pilot program look like? How will it work, Steve? Sure. So this is a this is a pilot that we've been working on for some time. Um, and actually, I have one of the devices right here. And what it basically does is it wraps the phone uh, in a unique case uh, that is meant to fit the form factor of the device. And it blocks out the sensors, both the camera as well as the uh, microphone, as well as uh, speakers uh, on the device. So you really don't get anything out of it if you were happen to be able to eavesdrop on a conversation. So, so hold that up to the camera again. So that wraps the phone. And so I still have access as the user to the screen of the phone. I can see what's going on on mm -hmm. the phone, but somebody that might try to gain access to the phone can't get access to that information. Am I hearing you right? Is that, am I getting the right idea? Correct. And there's a little, there's LEDs around the outside of the device that blink green when it's in a locked state. And then when you unlock the phone, when I slide this up and uncover the sensors, you can see that it went red to alert anyone around that now the camera is open as well as the forward facing camera. And if I were to go in here and I can actually take a video and, and watch us here. Um, and then I can close the, close the lid. You see that I went and closed it now. And then as I go and I play the video back, You hear that white noise, and that means that the sensors have been blocked. So yeah. the microphone's now blocked. You, you don't get anything out of the device. The cameras are now covered. So you can still use the device. And, and that's the that was the important part to us is the fact that, you know, in the modern world, we use our mobile devices everywhere. They're an integral part of our of our personal lives as well as our work lives. And and we take and we make folks lock these things up as they go into their work areas. Uh, in these secured spaces. So 
what we're after is a way that to allow them to continue to use these devices uh, when they go into these secured spaces, but do it in a secure way so that you know it, it's useless if the device is eavesdropped on. The eavesdropping piece of this, that part makes perfect sense to me. Trying to think like the bad guys, if the bad guy is somebody internal, somebody can still go into yeah. a meeting theoretically and record the meeting and so on. If you think that person's a good guy and extract mm-hmm. um, information that maybe they shouldn't, am I, am I, is that a possibility? So, so that is one of the things that we are working on uh, in, a, in a future revision of this case that we're working with the manufacturer on. Uh, it would start to use geofencing and actually motorized uh, locks around the sensors so that you're not relying on the user to unlock and lock that device. Uh, but what you're allowing to have happen then is automatically when they get in a restricted space or if we lose the location of the device, it would automatically go into a locked state uh, so that if you do have someone that's, that's not acting ethically, um, you know, we'd be able to lock them out. What's the trajectory of this pilot uh, program look like, Steve? How's, how long will it take? What are you testing and so on? Sure. So, so this the the functionality that we've talked about so far is just one of the sets of functionality that we're actually uh, working on here. This is this program is actually part of our larger Assured Identity uh, program at DISA and within the department, where we're looking at how we can also add other sensors onto this device to continually authenticate the user uh, during their entire session. So, not just the fact that they've you know used potentially their face or their fingerprint but also things like location and, and the gyroscopes and, and uh, those types of sensors to build a model around their behavior and to uh, either allow or deny access to the device based on a wider range of attributes about how the user is interacting or uh, how they're using the device. Because it strikes me that's tying that into what I talked about earlier about the potential insider threat possibility gives you a whole, I mean, you're you're connecting a bunch of dots there, it sounds like. You're connecting uh, all kinds of identity dots there that the people have been talking about trying to connect for 10 or 15 years. That that's exactly our goal, and and that's what we're that's what we're going after here is 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 better better understanding of the user's identity and their their behavior, but not to be intrusive and and so intrusive that you're you're prompting them for a passcode or a password or a, a biometric every few minutes. You're constantly doing it in the background uh, and just. Locally, uh, I want to make sure that I stress that we're not taking this data and streaming this back to some centralized service. All of this happens locally on the device um, so that you're building that model of that user and and keeping it there and uh, allowing them access to potentially uh, you know other other applications or or more uh, more secure data uh, depending on their risk score. Steve, you're going to make a lot of people happy if they can take their devices into skiffs. Thanks for coming on and talking about the pilot. Thank you very much for the time. We're, we're very excited about this opportunity. Up next, the Space Force's missile warning system. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the results from an enterprise-wide review, and what's next for the missile program.
The chief of space operations, General Jay Raymond, says he's extremely pleased with the progress on the Space Force's missile warning system. The Joint Requirements Oversight Council liked what it saw in a new enterprise review of missile warning, tracking, and defense architecture. Todd Harrison's director of the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, welcome back. Thanks for coming on. Is this a big deal? Is this a new development? Or is this just part of the cadence of establishing a space force? I think that this is exactly what we should expect to be seeing happening. So, you know, basically what they're doing is they're going to this joint body, the Joint Requirements Oversight Council, and they're saying, hey, let's talk through what the overall DOD architecture should be for missile warning and missile defense. Uh, and there are a lot of different pieces to that architecture that are beyond the Space Force. And a big part of that is you've got the Space Force working on developing the next generation of missile warning satellites. It's called Overhead uh, Persistent Infrared, OPIR. Uh, so they're working on that program. Uh, and you've also got the Space Development Agency, which right now is not under the Space Force. Uh, and the Space Development Agency is off working on a low Earth orbit, highly proliferated constellation of satellites that will do some of the same functions, but will do other things as well. It'll be able to track missiles all throughout the course of their flight. Uh, and these things working together uh, can greatly improve the effectiveness of our missile defense systems, but they all have to be coordinated. Uh, and so that's what the, the JROC is doing, is they're trying to coordinate how these different pieces of the overall architecture are going to work together. So I think this is exactly what we should expect to see. So is this, should this be an opportunity also, though, to figure out how to rearrange that architecture? Because when you describe that, that satellite constellation, that sounds like exactly the whole point of Space Force. And when you tell me it's not under the Space Force today, it strikes me there's an opportunity to say, okay, we should put this piece over there where it belongs, where we intended this thing to be anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, and th this highlights the fact that the, you know, reorganization under the Space Force is not yet complete, that there are other pieces of the overall, you know, DOD space enterprise that still need to be transferred under the Space Force. Now, the Space Development Agency is going to be transferred, but not for a couple of years. Uh, and so, you know, in my view, I would go ahead and accelerate that and put it under there sooner rather than later. So this coordinating job, you know, of, of integrating the different systems they're developing, uh, so it actually becomes easier and more streamlined. Uh, but, you know, there are these different parts. The other big part of this uh, that is not getting, you know, much discussion yet is that we have significant space capabilities that reside in the Army. Uh, and, you know, they're still studying that, but they've not made final decisions yet on what parts of the Army uh, space enterprise uh, will move to the Space Force uh, and what the timeline for that will be. So there are other pieces here of the equation that haven't yet been settled, uh, but, you know, they need to do that over the next two or three years to make this transition complete and to achieve the original purposes, which is to you know, consolidate, streamline uh, all of our space capabilities in the military under one unified chain of command. And when you talk about a timeline and what that timeline will be, I guess the underlying idea there is that maybe there'll be no timeline at all. I know just about uh, enough about history to be dangerous, but I have read about the debates when the Air Force stood up about whether all aviation in the entire military should move there. Obviously, we're, what, 70 years out from that 
and there are huge aviation components in the other three branches of the military. So this is not a debate that we should expect to end anytime soon about Space Force, should we, Todd? No, we shouldn't. And ultimately, I think what's necessary is we're going to have to get to a point where we have something like a Key West agreement, uh, like the military had back you know, after DOD was formed and the Air Force was created. Uh, they sat down and had an agreement uh, and divided up roles and missions among the different services. Uh, you know, now with the creation of the Space Force, you know, we need a, a miniature version of that where we take, you know, different functions and say, okay, all of these space-related mission areas, uh, who's going to do what? Who has responsibility for what? What are we going to move, you know, to the Space Force? And what are we going to keep resident in the other services? I mean, there are a lot of gray areas. You know, take, for example, um, satellite communications terminals, the radios, the equipment on the ground that uh, forces use to communicate with space. Should some of those remain in the services or should they transfer to the Space Force? You can argue that either way, but these things do need to be settled. And I think we're going to need some sort of a big Key West agreement like, uh, you know, uh, forcing function to make that happen. We have about a minute left, Todd. Um, we laughed a little bit before we went on the air because the Space Force television show is going to debut this coming weekend. And with all due respect to my friends at Politico who put up a story this week, the television show that everybody inside the Pentagon's talking about. Do you think anybody inside the Pentagon's really talking about the Space Force TV show? <laughs> I think they're much more focused right now on putting together uh, their FY22 Palm, their draft budgets, <laughs> and getting those finalized. Um, but, you know, I think it is, it's entertaining. I think people are paying, you know, some passive attention to it at least, uh, because it's not that often that you see a comedy, a TV show, uh, come out that's based on something that kind of happened in real life, the creation of a new uh, military service for space. Uh, I think where it gets tricky is that, you know, this is a, a farce, uh, and it's not based uh, on what really happened or the real purpose of creating a space force. Um, you know, it's intended to be a joke, uh, but, you know, it, it's pushing it into pop culture in a way uh, that doesn't normally happen for the military. And, you know, I, I'll say that I, uh, you know, back a few months ago, I hosted General Raymond, the, the chief of space operations at CSIS for an event. And I jokingly asked him a question, you know, who should play you uh, in the Space Force TV show? Uh, of course, he said Bruce Willis, uh, but <laughs> that's not what happened. <laughs> but, you know, I think People are paying attention to it. I don't think that they're going to be obsessively focused on this or not. Uh, I hope that it's a funny show, though. I will be watching when it comes out on Friday. I think I have to wash my hair Friday night. Todd Harrison, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. Up next, the out year's impact on the defense budget from the coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a proposal to make the Pentagon's budget more flexible. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Pentagon's year-long planning for the fiscal year 22 budget. Maybe partly out the window. The government's coronavirus stimulus spending could impact the defense budget, but changes likely won't take effect for a few years. 
Eric Lofgren is a research fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He has a piece in Defense News on the stickiness of the defense budget. Eric, thanks very much for coming on the program. You write in this piece that there is a parallel here that you see between the coronavirus uh, deal that we're facing today and the 2008 financial crisis. Draw that parallel for me, please. Right. In both cases, you have unexpected economic shocks, which kind of lead to um, some elements looking for belt tightening throughout the government. And back in 2008, that happened in September 2008, the Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed um, and wasn't saved. And then it really took four years until belt tightening hit the Pentagon and you had more severe cuts with the 2013 sequestration. So when we look to the coronavirus, it might seem to some people that, hey, we have four, maybe five months until you know October starts, which is the start of the fiscal year 2021 budget. And that seems like enough time to make these trade-offs. But in reality, the complexity of the budget process and uh, the processes involved, both bureaucratic and political, you know, create forces which make it difficult to make near-term cuts to the budget in the next year, maybe two. Uh, so potentially we might not start seeing longer or larger uh, cuts to the defense budget until fiscal year 2023 or 2024. That's the stickiness that you're referring to, and that comports with what we're hearing from Secretary Esper and from the service secretaries, which is, hey, we expect budgets to at least be flat, and they even seem to portray sometimes flat budgets as the best-case scenario. Uh, are they thinking correctly, in your view, based on what you're talking about here, writing here about stickiness? Well, I don't really have an opinion one way or another whether the defense because the defense budget should or should not be cut. But I was really trying to just point out here the bureaucratic and political realities. So for example, the FY21 budget, it actually, the Pentagon was working on that two years in advance. It takes a long time and a lot of echelons of reviews to make these cost schedule technical trade-offs. And they're really, there's no line item for waste, right? That's Pierre Levine's uh, word there that it's, it's not like these cuts come easily. So it's not, and you don't even have just a blank slate two years ago, right? You have programs that were initiated and improved based on life cycle cost estimates. And if you're going to make these cuts, there's a lot of rethinking that has to go, go into it. So potentially you have to reformulate your entire analysis of alternatives for certain programs if you make targeted cuts. So there's a lot of bureaucratic reasons for that to be sticky, but then there's also political reasons. Of course, if you target certain programs ahead of time, you'll have the contractors in the districts affected telling you, hey, you're going to have all these job losses. And that's potentially not the best thing ahead of election day in an economic crisis. And so you'll start to build up a coalition of, of Congress members looking to protect the budget a little bit from those cuts. You write in this piece, if the Pentagon had more budget flexibility, then Congress could more easily cut top lines and allow Pentagon leaders to figure out how to maximize uh, with the constraint during the year of execution. What would that look like and what kind of flexibility would Congress have to grant? Is there a legislative fix they'd have to do or is it simply a matter of allowing it policy-wise in an NDAA vehicle or something like that? Well, it seems mostly that this can get done through just regular policy 
program element consolidation has been going on for a long time. So just to give you a, an indication of the complexity of the defense budget, just the RDT&E and procurement accounts, which is about a third of the total budget, include 1,900 program elements of specific weapon line items that you have to consider. And the Department of Defense has limited flexibility once you make those decisions in the budget to reallocate across those program stovepipes. And those program stovepipes are further broken down into several budgeted program account codes. So there's a great deal of complexity here. And just being able to raise those budgets, um, consolidate some program elements, still provide Congress insight at the lower level, but allow them to make more trade-offs in the year of execution can go a long way. And this is something that the Space Force has been asking for in a recent proposal for an alternative acquisition system. They really pointed to financial reform as one of the more important uh, concepts and they wanted to take budget line items, consolidate them into capability areas. So, for example, if Congress were to make uh, near-term cuts to the top lines of some of these program elements, the Department of Defense would have much more flexibility to figure out what that means in the year of execution. And it actually aligns with the concepts of agility. So portfolio management, we've been hearing this from the Section 809 Committee, Defense Innovation Board, portfolio management allows the department to take advantage of real options to make choices that allow it to pivot, start new things, and grab a hold of emerging technology. Eric Lofgren, thanks very much for joining us. A great piece in Defense News. Thanks for discussing it with me. You're welcome. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.